Good morning. As our children wander off to their respective rooms, I would invite you to turn in your copy of Scripture to the book of Acts. We're going to begin looking at the passage that we opened up last week with Neil uh, kind of overviewing a large section. It's a Stephen and his address to the council and also uh, the eventual stoning. While you turn there, I just want to remind you that this is the uh, Sanctity of Human Life month. This is a month where we pay attention to that and make sure that we understand that the fight is not over when it comes to those things. I know with Roe v. Wade being overturned, I think a lot of people have just kind of sighed a little relief, um, but it's far from over. You see that actually the intensity of the fight has increased, uh, especially in a lot of states other than ours. Um, but even within our own state, there is opposition to this. And so I just want to remind you to not put your guard down, to keep fighting that good fight. There are places that fight this battle on the front lines every day. The Women's Resource Center here, uh, there's one in Robertsdale. They're actually forging into all the communities around here in Mobile, outside of Mobile, into Saraland and places like that. Uh, these are vital ministries for women who find themselves in a crisis pregnancy, but it's also for men. There are many people here um, who are volunteering there. And so there's discipleship for the men, uh, really inviting them to come in and take ownership and responsibility. Um, there is even marriage counseling for those who are electing to get married and to continue on as a family. There's so much that is other than just the one aspect of respecting life and humanity. And so I just want you to be aware of that, to number one, encourage you to continue to pray. Uh, but number two, if you don't have a vital ministry that you're plugged into and you're looking for that, man, that's a great opportunity. I'm telling you, like, you could minister to someone that just needs so desperately for someone to listen to because they don't have a lot of people to talk to. And you could speak life into their situation, not just for them and the baby, but for them personally and spiritually. It's a powerful opportunity. I just want to bring that to the forefront of your mind this month, that you'd be aware of that, that you would support them, um, that you would financially support them if you haven't already done so. They're a great ministry. They, they have ultrasound equipment. They help these women that are coming in. But also, if you don't have that ministry that you've like plugged into, there's discipleship opportunities there. There's even clerical things that you can do. I mean, they need so many different things. So I just want to put that out there. Since this is the month to recognize that, I just want to put that in front of you and say, number one, pray. Number two, get involved and make sure that you don't let your guard down. Let's keep fighting this good fight because it's worthy of the attention and the passion that we give to that. And really, our passage lends itself to this idea of the respect and sanctity of life because we see Stephen, who becomes really the first martyr of the um, Christian church. Uh, we've seen this progression of the persecution that's happening with him, with Peter, with many of the other apostles, but he becomes the first one who actually loses his life because of his faith. Now, Neil talked a lot about this last week, so I'm not going to repeat the things that he looked at, so I'm going to go a little bit of a different direction. But if you would, jump into the passage with me. I'm not going to read the whole thing, but I'm going to draw your attention to a few things. Look at verse 8 of chapter 6. It says, And Stephen, full of grace and power, was doing great wonders and signs among the people. Wouldn't you love for that to be the testimony of your life? Like when somebody talks about you, that they say, oh, man, Jack, that's a guy who was full of grace and power. 
Uh, Stephen was this guy who was just a faithful witness. There was nothing extravagant about Stephen. The reason that he was used powerfully is because of the Holy Spirit. It wasn't his own abilities. It was because he emptied himself, because he became a vessel for the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit worked mightily through him. That's what it's talking about when it talks about those great wonders and signs among the people. Look how it continues in verse 9. Then some of those who belonged to the synagogue of the freedmen, as it was called. Now, the reason that Luke probably brings this out is that we do have historical references that Paul was probably a part of this group, the freedmen's, okay? And we do know that Saul was here at the stoning of Stephen. Stephen, remember, Saul was what he went by as his Hebrew name. Paul was what he became known as because as he went out to um, the Gentiles, Paul was a Roman name, similar names. He didn't change his name. He just used his Roman name that was comparative to his Hebrew name. So we're talking about the apostle Paul. He was here at this, probably why Luke names them or draws out this group called the freedmen, and of the Cyrenians, and of the Alexandrians, and of those of Cilicia and Asia, rose up and disputed with Stephen. But they could not withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. Then he secretly, or they, then they secretly investigated men, or investigated, instigated men who said, we have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. So Stephen began to speak in the power of the spirit. Again, not because he was super intellectual, not because he was well studied. It was because he was an empty vessel that God could use. And so God gave him this power to speak clearly. The spirit used him and spoke clearly through him. And so these people, obviously this opposition rises up against him and they begin to accuse him of things that that are not true about what he was saying. Look at verse 12. And they stirred up the people and the elders and the scribes, and they came upon him and seized him and brought him before the council. And they set up false witnesses who said, this man never ceases to speak words against this holy place and the law. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and will change the customs that Moses delivered to us. Now, the best lie is one that sounds a lot like the truth. Now, the, the truth is Stephen was saying things a lot like this, but he wasn't saying them in this manner. He was saying that Jesus Christ fulfilled the law. He was probably preaching the same thing that Jesus did, that there was no need for sacrifices anymore because Jesus was the perfect sacrifice. But that doesn't go against Scripture because Scripture said one day the Messiah is going to come and he's going to fulfill these things. Jesus himself said, I didn't come to destroy Torah. I've come to fulfill it to its fullest degree. So Stephen was continuing to preach these things. They took his words and turned it as if this place, when they use that term there, this place, they're talking about the temple. So they're saying Stephen is undermining the temple as being centralized to Jewish worship. Well, was he? Yeah, he was to a degree. Why? Because God no longer dwells in the temple. He dwells in the hearts of people. But this is what all the prophets of the Old Testament said was going to happen when the Messiah came. So he is preaching truth fulfilled through Jesus. They are twisting his words and saying that he's coming up against what the scripture teaches and against what Moses teaches and against what the prophets have said as well. 
Look how it continues there. Verse 15, and gazing at him, all who sat in the council saw that his face was like the face of an angel. What that means is his countenance was undeterred by their accusations. In other words, when they looked at him, they didn't see a man who was frightened. They didn't see a man who was getting angry. They didn't see a man who became super defensive. No, they saw a man who was at peace with himself and was ready to respond to the things that they said about him. Look at verse 1 of chapter 7. And the high priest said, are these things so? Now, I want you to notice right now that there's a lot of similarities between everything that Jesus went through in his trial and crucifixion and what Stephen is going through. Luke is intentional about this. He's been intentional about showing us when Peter preaches, he preaches the same thing that Jesus preached. When Peter heals, he does it in the same manner that Jesus healed. And now he's showing us Stephen, when he's on trial and when he faces death, he both responds and dies with the same kind of dignity and even the same kinds of words and attitudes that Jesus did. What is Luke trying to convey to us? Hey, the best life is when you live as a mirror image of Jesus. When you follow him as his disciple and you learn to live life like him. The goal of the Christian life is learn to think like God and to respond like God. That's what it means to be God-like. Not to be a God, but to be more like God in our thinking and in our action. To reflect his character and his actions and his attitude to the world around us. That's what we were created to be. Look how it continues. And the high priest said, are these things so? And Stephen said, brothers and fathers, hear me. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia before he lived in Haran. And I'm not going to go on and tell all of this, but basically he sets up this narrative how Abraham was promised all of these things and taking, taken out of his life that it was before meeting God and being invited into this relationship with God. And he brought him into this place and promised him all of these things, and yet Abraham never realized any of those promises. He never actually had any of the land that was promised because it wasn't going to be fulfilled until the other people come along, his descendants, of which he had none at that time. And so Luke paints this picture through Stephen preaching here that when God is at work, it doesn't often look like God's at work. Oftentimes, it looks like our our situation is spontaneous. It looks like that God is just in the background somewhere, making promises, but never coming through with them. And the story of Abraham kind of bears that out. Hey, you're going to be a father of a great nation. You're going to have many descendants. I don't even have a single kid. You're going to have this whole land. I don't have any of this land. There are people living in it. But I promise you this is going to be true. And look how Stephen continues on. As he moves on down in verse 8, Abraham became the father of Isaac and circumcised him on the eighth day. And Isaac became the father of Jacob and Jacob the 12 patriarchs. So now we've gone to one to 12 patriarchs. And then he begins to tell the story of Joseph, how Joseph was betrayed by his brothers, thrown into a pit, was about to be killed, sold into slavery, mistreated in Egypt. This story looks really bad. And then all of a sudden, God is faithful in the background. He was using all of that, not only to bring Joseph to this elevated position, but to use it to save Abraham's boys and even Jacob himself, to bring them into this place of safety and prepare them for the fulfillment of these promises. So he says, again, what looks like tragedy becomes triumph. He continues on beyond that after he talks about the famine that they went into. 
Um, And it goes down to verse 17. But as the time of the promise drew near, which God had granted to Abraham, the people increased and multiplied in Egypt. So it talks about how they went there and there was this Pharaoh that came up that didn't know Joseph anymore. And so he then began to enslave the people and they were enslaved for over 400 years. But after 400 years of slavery, God raises up this guy by the name of Moses, who was miraculously saved because all the boys his age were being killed by Pharaoh. But Moses survives in these unusual circumstances, and he ends up being adopted by Pharaoh's daughter and brought into Pharaoh's house. And then one day as he rises to this, this place of affluence, he realizes his people are still being mistreated and he's connected with them. And so he defends one of them, kills an Egyptian who was abusing one of his people. And he thought he got away with it. But then the next day he was trying to intervene with a fight with some of his own Hebrew people. And they said, are you going to kill us like you killed that Egyptian yesterday? And he didn't realize number one, that he had been found out. Number two, he was realizing that his own people don't even respect him. And so Moses flees for his life. He runs into the wilderness. Another tragedy, another good story gone bad, another place where it seems like God's working. And then all of a sudden the circumstances say, God is a million miles away. So much potential for this guy. And yet he ends up wandering around in the wilderness for 40 years. And then after 40 years, all of a sudden, he walks by this place. He's walked by probably 100 times, and there's this bush that's on fire, but yet it's not being consumed. And God begins to speak through him, and he calls him to lead the people out of Egypt. And he does that, and miraculously, God brings them out. There's triumph, but then they get into the wilderness, and everything seems to fall apart again. They aren't respective of God. They don't respect the covenant that they've made with him. They want to go back to Egypt. And Stephen keeps saying, when he gets to the end of this, he says, you know what? This is the people that you've become. You're just like all of our fathers. Look at now verse 39. All of our fathers who refused to obey Moses, but thrust him aside. And in their hearts, they turned to Egypt, saying to Aaron, make for us gods who will go before us. And of course, we know that's the graven image that they end up building. So they wanted to worship. They wanted to be spiritual people. They just wanted it on their own terms. They didn't want it on God's terms. And ultimately, this is the accusation that Stephen levels against the council. Look down in verse 48. Yet the Most High does not dwell in houses made by men or by hands, as the prophet says. Heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord? Or what is the place of my rest? Did not my hand make all these things? You stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit as your fathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, whom you have now betrayed and murdered. Speaking of Jesus there. You have received the law and delivered, that was delivered by angels, yet did not keep it. Now, when they heard these things, they were enraged and they ground their teeth at him. But he, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, behold, I see the heavens open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. But they cried out with a loud voice and stopped their ears and rushed together at him. Then they cast him out of the city and stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. 
So this is the first time we're introduced to the Apostle Paul by the name of Saul, which is his Hebrew name. He's there at the stoning of Stephen. And as they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against me. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. So last week, we looked at the overview of this entire passage, and we know that it starts off telling us a little bit about Stephen's character. He was full of faith and full of the Holy Spirit, full of great wonders and signs among the people, as it tells us in chapter 6, verse 8. I'm not sure what Stephen thought was going to be the result of this counsel, of this inquiry, but I can almost guarantee you that he didn't think he was going to die this day. Now, maybe it was revealed to him. I don't know. The passage doesn't tell us that, but I'm making my assumption based on this. Everything that we've been told so far, people are miraculously delivered from. Think about Peter being in prison and miraculously where it was locked, they open up, they walk back out, they begin to proclaim back in the temple grounds the the story and truth of Jesus. And, And like, how did these people get out? So we've seen this miraculous deliverance even under persecution. This is the first time we've seen it result in death. Do you see how the persecution is beginning to grow? Now, here's what's amazing. Even though I don't think that Stephen thought he was going to die today, isn't it amazing that he doesn't flinch in the face of the prospect of dying? You never see him change his demeanor. You never see him change his approach. You never see him change the way he's thinking or speaking to these people. The progression that we've seen thus far through the book of Acts is it starts with opposition against the message, then it grows to persecution, and then now it's blown up into full-blown murder. Stephen stays strong throughout this entire process. Last week, Neil kind of portrayed for us these three aspects that we see in this passage. Number one, that Stephen lived like Jesus. We, we see that he, early on in the passage a couple of weeks ago, where we looked at when they were picking people who were going to oversee the, the distribution of food to the widows, Stephen was one of the ones who was picked for that. Why? Because he was living like Jesus. He was reaching out to the marginalized. He was one that could be trusted. He was one that was going to oversee those who needed help. He had a heart for that. He lived like Jesus. But the second thing that we learned is that he also spoke like Jesus. I mean, the things that he says about the prophets and the thing that he says about the Old Testament and the perspectives that he has on Moses and the law and all these things is exactly the same things that Jesus was teaching. Whenever he spoke to these men of the council, he speaks as Jesus spoke before him, before he was crucified. And you know, the third thing is he ends up dying like Jesus. And there's so many similarities to the inquisition that he goes through and then the ultimate uh, council coming against him and, and certifying that he's going to die and then his death. I mean, you think about it, even as he, as he is expiring, um, he says, I, into your hands, I commit my spirit. And he says, don't hold this against them. Forgive them of their sins. They don't know what they do. There's so many similarities between Jesus before the council, Jesus on the cross and Jesus dying and Stephen that it is not a mistake. Luke wants us to see that these early men of the early church were only living out what they saw modeled by Jesus himself. And how were they able to do it? By the power of the Holy Spirit. See, one of the accusations that the council levels against Stephen is that he is speaking against and thus violating the temple. Look at back at verse 13 of chapter 6. And they set up false witnesses 
and said, these false witnesses made these accusations, this man never ceases to speak words against this holy place, talking about the temple, and the law. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and will change the customs that Moses delivered to us. Now, Luke seems to emphasize both here and in um, the book of Luke, the gospel of Luke, this whole idea of decentralizing the temple. Okay, so Jesus begins this by saying the temple was for a time period, but a time was coming when the Messiah arrives that we won't need the temple anymore. So it used to be a place of God's presence. This used to be a place where you went to experience God. But Luke makes it clear that God's presence is no longer there, that God's presence is something that comes to you now. When you go back and you think about the veil that was torn in two, uh, in the temple when Jesus died, it was torn from top to bottom as if God was tearing this. And, and the point was not that you are now allowed to go into the Holy of Holies. It was more the Holy of Holies was coming out to you. God was not contained inside this place anymore. He was now coming out and he was going to begin to pursue those whose hearts were completely his. So it is God coming out and pursuing man. I think that's the picture that Luke paints for us. So Paul even continues this. Obviously, here, hearing this from Stephen, Paul continues to write about the decentralizing of the temple. He says that you are the temple of the Holy Spirit, that you should take care of your body because it's the temple of the Holy Spirit. Why? Because God's presence doesn't dwell in a city, in a building. It dwells in the hearts of those who are his. And so God has now come out of the temple and into the hearts of believers. Saul who was there, later the Apostle Paul, will begin to write about this over and over and over again, reinterpreting what it means to be the temple of God. Now, there's another thing that runs through this passage, and that is the contrast between the condemnation of the crowd and the accommodations of Jesus. So the crowd is angry at Stephen because of what he says. But yet we see this picture contrasted with that of Jesus standing at the right hand of the throne of God. Now that's important because every other passage that we've ever seen, Jesus is sitting at the right hand of the throne of God. He even talks about the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the throne of God. This is the only one where he is standing. Why is he standing? Because he is getting ready to welcome Stephen in to his reward. Now here's the thing I think a lot of people misunderstand about this. Tell me if, if you have this right. I used to think that the reason Jesus is standing up to receive him is because as Stephen is being stoned, he's about to impart. But that's not the case here. Stephen hasn't started the stoning yet. This is a, he hasn't even been convicted yet. They haven't even pursued that yet. They actually condemn him and begin the stoning because of this vision that he has. If you look at the passage as it unfolds, that's really what happens there. He sees this vision of Jesus standing at the right hand of the throne of God, and they are overwhelmed with this, and they shut their ears, and that's when they run after him. And the one thing that we see from this is the, the words of Jesus come to the front of our minds when we see what happens with Stephen here. Do you remember when Jesus says, in this world, you will have trouble, but take comfort I've overcome the world. In that one statement, is Jesus not saying, hey, in this world, you're going to have situations that doesn't look like I'm in control. 
You're going to have situations where it looks like evil wins. You're going to have situations where it looks like darkness is powerful. But take courage. I've overcome all of those. Not I will overcome them. Not I'm going to. I have overcome them. So, so what seems to be true, Jesus is saying, is not true. You have to wait it out, and you have to see what God's doing in the background. That's why Stephen goes back to this litany of their history saying, have y'all not realized this happened over and over again? Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, go further than that, Joseph, Moses, the people, over and over again, it looks like God's plan is failing, and yet every single time we find out God has been working in the backgrounds. The same thing is true in our own lives. Sometimes overcoming can look overwhelming. Why? Because sometimes when we fight against those forces of darkness in our life, it just seems overwhelming. It seems insurmounting. It seems impossible. And yet, we are called overcomers. And yet, Jesus says, I've already defeated this. And so it's a matter of us living in the truth of God versus of the reality of our circumstances. And that's hard to do because you have to look beyond your circumstances to see what is it that God is doing in your life? What is it God is growing in you or developing in your character? Now, I do find the wording that Luke uses here in verse 54 to be very interesting. Look at verse 54. When the members of the Sanhedrin heard this, they were furious and they gnash their teeth at him. Now notice I'm quoting here from the NIV, not the ESV, which I usually do, because the ESV doesn't translate it this way. But that NIV, I think they get it right because I think Luke is making a connection back to the gospel of Luke. Because if you go back to the gospel of Luke in Luke chapter 13, verse 28, it says, and this is Jesus speaking, in that place, there will be weeping and what? Yes, why? When you see Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and all the prophets in the kingdom of God, but you yourselves are cast out. Jesus says that one day there's going to be a judgment day, and there are going to be a lot of people who are going to be disappointed. They thought they were on the side of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, but they're going to have this realization that Isaac, Jacob, Abraham, they're all on that side, and we've been cast aside. Why? Because we missed God's revelation through these individuals in the promise that came. What's the promise? The Messiah. And they missed it because he was right in front of them, but they didn't have the heart to accept it. They didn't have the wisdom, the eyes. They didn't have the, the humility to receive the Christ when he showed up. And because of that, there is this gnashing of teeth. Why? Because there's this fury that I didn't get my way, that it didn't happen the way I wanted it to. And there is this revelation that because of that, I have missed everything. I have missed everything. And he's saying to their, as they gnash their teeth, that literally they are the people who have rejected Christ and have been set aside because of that. Ultimately, I think this passage brings together a very simple but an absolutely profound truth. Okay? I'm going to put it simplistically to you. It goes like this. Death brings life. You agree with me on that? Death brings life. How many of you have developed this habit of eating? Anybody in here? 
Yeah, I mean, we do have this habit of eating, don't we? You're, for, you're already thinking about it right now. Like, where are we going after this? Like, I mean, where did this habit come from? Like, do you know? Did you develop it? Did you work on it? Where, when did it start? All you know is that if you don't continue this habit, you're going to wither away and die, right? Because you have to eat to live. When you don't have enough food, you starve and you die. Think about eating for a moment. Let's say we eat an apple or some grapes. Let's eat some grapes that are connected to a vine. That vine is connected to the soil, and the soil has nutrients in it. And so the vine is pulling from the nutrients, and it's running up the vine to the fruit. Now, when you pull that piece of fruit, you have disconnected it from its life source. And immediately, as beautiful as it may look and as great as it may taste, it has begun the process of death. And obviously, when you consume it, it is dying. You think about the meat that you eat. Something had to die so that you could consume it. And by consuming it, you continue to live. Death brings life. Matter of fact, a lot of people say that the closer to death it is, the better it is for you. Fresh fruits and vegetables, not something that's been frozen for a long time. That's much better for you. It's just been picked. My dad used to say, I like to eat shrimp that were swimming in the bay last night. Okay, That's the way he liked. That's fresh, right? That, that tastes so much better. Uh, meat that you have, it's fresh meat. It's so much better for you, right? It's almost like closer to the death it was, the better it is for you. So for food to give us life, it has to die first. And if it didn't have to die, it's probably not very good for you. Mountain Dew, Twinkies, not a lot in that died, okay? And that's why not a lot in that is actually good for you or nutritious. The closer to death it is, the better it is for you. It's like their deadness gives you life. But not only is this true nutritionally, it's also true environmentally. The dirt is eaten by the worms, the worm is eaten by the bird, and then the cat eats the bird, and then the cat dies, and its body lays there in the dirt, and it decays and decomposes, and then the great-grandchildren of that worm end up eating that cat. And that's the circle of life. Like we could all sing it right now, right? But the truth is, we know that to be true. Like our ecosystem depends on this process that's continually going. And it's built on this principle that death brings life. I remember as a kid, my dad used to love planting things. He grew beans. And when we finally got like two acres of land, I remember we not, it was almost like a farm we had in the backyard, like rows of corn and beans and all of these different kinds of things. He would experiment with everything. And I remember even as a young child working with that, and I would go out there and help him. Of course, he'd have all this stuff. And, you know, I'm getting old enough where I'm reading things, getting a little more interesting. I was like, dad, I'm just like digging in there, like, dad, what's manure? Like cow manure. What is that? And he was like looking at me like, is he old enough to tell him this yet? Okay, let's go. And so he begins to tell me and you go, I'm like, like looking at my hands and my fingernails and looking back at him. And I'm like, what? This came from where? And we're putting in here. Why? And so this principle was, yeah, this is a bunch of really dead stuff. It's a, what cows have processed, but it's really good for these plants. And I'm like, really? Like, it, it helps them? Oh, yeah, they'll become alive. They'll become green. They'll grow so much better with this in it. What was he teaching me? He was teaching me that death brings 
life. It's true in the fabric of creation. It's true in the fabric of the cosmos. It's not some esoteric or abstract principle. It's true in every way that the world works. I'll take it to another level. How many of you have ever heard a story of of a firefighter giving up his life to go and save someone else? Or a police officer uh, taking bullets in in a heroic action of saving someone? Or maybe even a military person who throws themselves on a grenade to save his platoon members? We would think about something like that, someone's death, and we would say, man, that story of that sacrifice is so inspiring. And I talked to an FCA group this past week, and this is really what gave me the thought of this as I was studying Stephen. It's the Latin word inspiring comes from inspiros. Inspiros in Latin means breath, and in means in. So it means breath into. So when we say something is, is inspiring, we are saying it breathes life into me. Now think about this, expiration is the opposite of that. It means life going out. Isn't it fascinating that we would talk about someone's expiration as inspiration? Life leaves them and somehow breathes life into us. Isn't that fascinating? Isn't it interesting that we speak of life in those terms? Well, I don't think it's all that odd at all now that I've studied the Bible, because when the Bible talks about it, it talks about those exact terms. Romans chapter 6, verse 8. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Somehow his death brings life. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 14. For the love of Christ controls us because we have concluded this. That one has died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all, and that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. He's making the argument that somehow life brings death. The cross, Jesus' death, brings life to those who believe it and engage it. Romans chapter 5, verse 8 But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. Death brings life. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, For I delivered to you, as of the first importance, what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. Death brings life. And in case you didn't notice it, the man who wrote every single one of those is the Apostle Paul, who was standing over the dead body of Stephen as Saul 
thinking he had it right. But Saul, later the Apostle Paul, admits that the way that Stephen died so impacted him that he could never get that image out of his mind. Even though for months beyond this day, he bled out murderous threats against the church and continued to persecute him until Jesus introduced himself. And then Paul begins to look back with regret over how he was fighting the church. We're going to begin to introduce that in the next chapter. But I want you to think about that for a moment. How much of what Stephen says here impacts what Paul would write later? Death brings life. This is the man who would write, after the book of Acts, Romans, 1 and 2 Corinthians, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, 1 and 2 Timothy, Titus. I mean, all of these books are the ones that Paul writes. And what, does, what is it that echoes throughout every one of these books? Death brings life. Where did he see that? He saw that when he was on the other side of the persecutions. And it impacted him. You know what? We could look at Stephen's life and say, how tragic. How tragic. But the truth is, God was working in the background of Stephen's sacrifice. And he was getting this man ready, who he was going to call to his side, who was going to impact generations after generation after generation. You know, life, when we only think of ourselves gets progressively smaller. It's more and more about me and less and less about others. It's like concentric circles that as you get closer and closer, they get tighter and tighter. But if you're living for others, now I'm not living for myself anymore. I'm living for those who are outside of myself. People who have a self-centered worldview, their world is consistently and constantly shrinking. But those who live for the kingdom of God, they're focused outside of themselves. They're focused on others. They've made a commitment to live for something bigger than themselves. They're constantly laying down their lives for the sake of others. Their world is getting bigger and bigger and bigger. All of a sudden, my life is not about me. It's about you. And it's about you. And it's about you, and I'm not focused on myself anymore. That's why someone who is dialed into Jesus is more open-minded and more free, and their worldview is so much bigger. I don't mean open-minded in the sense they're welcoming any philosophy or theology. I mean they haven't put God in a box. They don't look at a situation and say, God has left me. God has not been faithful. God has not been good. They look and go, I don't know what God's doing, but I know he's always working in the background. I can't wait to see the order he brings to this chaos. They never put God in a box. What's fascinating is the way to articulate what it means to really live. You see, when somebody has served you, and denied themselves in the process of serving you, that's the cross, whether you realize it or not. Have you ever seen somebody that has done something so sacrificial for someone else, you just thought to yourself, man, that is so beautiful. You see the really popular kid at school, he leaves the popular table and he goes and sits with the people that are not so popular, and we're like, that's beautiful. 
That's sacrifice. That's looking at others, holding others in higher regard than yourself. When you see the husband that sacrifices for the wife or the wife who sacrifices for her children or the brothers and sisters that sacrifice for one another, you look back and you go, wow, they could have made a selfish decision and nobody would have said a thing, but they walked across that, denied themselves and put someone else's interest higher than their own. Wow, that's beautiful. Maybe you're not really affirming that person. Maybe you're affirming the cross. Because God has put eternity on the hearts of men. And when we see the life-giving force of what the cross is, no matter how it's acted out in life, there's something inspiring about it. Why? Because we're recognizing the very fabric of the universe and how God created it to work. Look at that very last verse. I want to end with this. And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. Did you uh, notice that it doesn't say that he died? He just fell asleep. I don't know if you know this or not, but I find this absolutely fascinating that after the resurrection of Jesus, do you know that the word death or dead is never used in relation to a believer again in the rest of the New Testament? It never says a believer died or that they experienced death. It always says they fell asleep. It's almost like when Jesus defeated death, he defeated the very word death because it doesn't show up in the vocabulary anymore. Now, it'll talk about dying to yourself and being dead in your trespasses. The word dead is still there, but it's not in relation to the physical expiration of a believer. Why? Because these New Testament writers gravitated to this truth that death only brings life. And when someone transitions from the physical to the spiritual, life gets even better more grand. Physically, their body has gone to sleep, but spiritually, they're more alive than they've ever been. Isn't that a beautiful picture? And the question I want you to ask yourself today is this, what am I really living for? And if I'm really living for it, what death am I dying to attain it? Because see, the thing is, Many times we're living those concentric circles and we're looking at our own life and we're looking at our own bank account and we're looking at our own success and we're looking at our own accolades and our world keeps getting smaller and smaller and smaller and tighter and tighter. And before long, we just get overwhelmed with, with, with so much you know, anxiety or depression or being overwhelmed with having to keep up with the Joneses or trying to please the crowd. And, and it's just, it never satisfies time to look up and out and begin to live for something bigger than ourselves and our own kingdom. And when you do, your life gets bigger and bigger and bigger. And then you begin to experience the fullness of the kingdom of God and the peace that it can bring to your heart. Let's pray together. God, thank you for a wonderful story reminding us about the first martyr of the church, 
a man who we really don't know a whole lot about except for the passage right before it when he's introduced as a man who was faithful. He was one who came into the kingdom believing in Jesus and living out that belief in totality, reaching out to the marginalized, nothing beneath him. No, no action or ministry or work was too low for him. He was a servant of servants. And in this moment, he rose to the occasion and you, Holy Spirit, spoke boldly through him. And it ended up costing him his life. But it ended up impacting another one. There was Saul taking it all in. The coats laying at his feet of those who would stone Stephen and take his life. And later on, you would use this to impact him, to call him. And the very words that we read throughout the rest of the New Testament are words that echo from the mouth of Stephen. Won't you live for something bigger than yourself? Those who try to protect their life lose it. But those who lose their life for my sake, they are the ones who find true life. Mm -hmm.